book. If you don't have a Bible, if you just want one, raise your hand back here and uh, one of the guys will bring you up a copy of the Word of God. Uh, I forgot to say that this morning. If uh, You're welcome to have that Bible. Chase has got one, good, okay. And uh, you can take that with you, Chase, or anybody else has got one. It's your Bible. If you want it, you can keep it. Uh, if you don't like that one, come and see me and I'll go buy you a better one. I don't care, but we'll get you. We want you to have a copy of the Word of God. Last week, when we started to study the book of 1 Peter, my, what a great book that is. And we saw in that book, the theme of that book was the suffering of God's people and the victory that they can have through that suffering. Now, today we're going to be in the book of 2 Peter. And if you remember last week, I told you how that all of your New Testament is built around two guys. And it's an easy way to remember the New Testament. Because there's two men in the Bible that really the New Testament is built around. One of them is the Apostle Paul, and he is the man that God gives the commission to uh, lay out the body mystery of the church. The other one, of course, we talked about last week was Peter. And Peter, uh, you find that uh, he is given the charge of the nation of Israel. And you'll find that the books that these two men write and represent really represent what their ministry is. At some point in your life, at some point in your life, and we may do this together as a church at some time, but at some point in your life, <clears throat> what you need to do is this. You need to take a study of the 12 apostles and study them in the light of what I call a character study. These 12 men that the Lord picked, He didn't just pick them because of the fact He says, okay, I'm going to have 12 guys today, let's go out and find some. No, no. He picked them because every one of them had a particular area of character that God was looking for. And he was looking for that particular area of character. So 2,000 years later, as we're studying about life and about our struggles in life and the things that we deal with and go through in life, we too might be able to look back in these men's lives and see how their character was developed. See how that their lives were just like your life and my life. We have a tendency to think because they're in the Bible and they're 12 apostles that they all walked on water. That they all just didn't have any struggles in life. That they all, because they were with the Lord and they were the chosen 12, that they all just lived above the circumstances and we as common ordinary people are left to struggle with life. That's not true. That's not true at all. You're going to find when you study the lives of the 12 apostles that they had their ups and downs just like you and I do. And they have to go through the same trials and tribulations that, that you do and I do. Now, I said all that to say this. Peter is an incredible study because there's nobody in the Bible that I know of that represents the spiritual growth years in a young Christian's life like Peter does. I mean, you got John, and John is the stable one. You got Thomas, and Thomas is the proving one. And you got James, you know, and James is a good guy. But when it comes to Peter, there is no man in the Bible that I know of where you can study his life and see all of the aspect, aspects of spiritual growth. Peter reminds me, and I got to just tell you this, he reminds me of so many of you guys and gals. He reminds me of so many young men I've seen come through my life over the years. And Peter represents the spiritual growth that we all have to go through. And I'll tell you what, these next four or five things I say about Peter, you don't want to miss if you're trying to build your relationship with God because it shows you where we're all at. You realize that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, that Peter and his brother Andrew were the first apostles that God chose. They're the first ones that he got. And uh, the Bible says that the Lord is walking along the seashore and there as he, as he, he sees uh, Peter and Andrew down there and they're down there with their fishing nets, they're commercial fishermen, and they are the first two men that he, he calls. And yet that itself sets up a great study because the first two men that God called to be with him were commercial fishermen. You know why? It sets up the great study that Jesus said later that we as New Testament Christians are to be fishers of men. So by contrast and by example and by consistency, first two men he picks are fishermen. 
because it sets the scene for the great study that you and I as Christians need to be fishers for men. We need to be telling men and women the story of Christ. That's our job after we're saved. Then I like this. You'll find in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 4, uh, Jesus said to, to Peter, he says, he goes up to him now, and now get the scene. They're down here pulling in their nets or doing whatever they're doing with their nets. Jesus walks up and simply says, he didn't flash an ID card and says, hey, I'm Jesus Christ incarnate, you know, follow me. No, all he comes up and says is, follow me. And the Bible says, and I love this word. Now, this is the beauty of your King James Bible in that pure Elizabethan English language that everybody says is outdated. Because the answer comes back in the Bible that straightway he followed him. Now, I love that phrase, and that is the right word. Today, we would say it differently. We'd say right away. But the King James translators understood as the pure English language before it got mauled in America knew that when somebody did something straightway, that the Bible says that narrow is the way and straight is the way when you follow Christ. And it's semi-showing me that when Peter decided to follow God, he went the right way, the straight way, and you know what? He never strayed off that path. Now, I know what you're saying right now. You're saying, well, he did too, Bob. He denied Christ. Well, hang on just a minute. Hang on. We'll get to that in just a second. I want you to see this man called Peter. And it's an incredible study. And you know what? Those two statements pretty well sum Peter up in all of his life. Peter is a hard charger. Peter is a bull in a china shop. But when he got Jesus, he got him. And the things that I, I love about Peter, you got to love this guy. I mean, Peter makes up his mind that he's going to follow God straightway. And you know what? He's going to serve God no matter who says what, including God. He doesn't have a lot of knowledge, but he's got a tremendous amount of zeal. I've seen young men like that. I'd rather have a young man be on fire for God and do stupid things because he's on fire for God than a young man that doesn't care about God and just does stupid things. And I'm telling you, that's Peter. And I've watched, I've watched him in his life as you come through the Word of God, and he just, he's always, he's always there. I'll give you some examples. In Matthew chapter 14, they're in a little boat. And what happens? You know the story. Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And here's the 12 disciples in the boat. Nobody says nothing. One of them may say, it's the Lord. Peter says, hey, Lord, can I come out and walk with you? The Lord says, come on, Peter. And Peter, the only one in the boat that had enough faith to step out of that boat, and he walked on the water for a short time. But then the Bible says that the wind and the storm around him and the waves, he got his eyes off that, and what happened? He began to sink. You see, you know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of some of you young men right now and some of you young ladies that have a desire to serve God, but you're not yet a water walker. That walking on the water and coming to Jesus is a picture of the principle in the Bible that we as Christians walk by faith and not by sight. And when he had his eyes on the Lord Jesus, walking by faith, he was on top of the water. When he got his eyes off the waves and off Jesus, he sank. That is a great example that Peter wasn't ready to walk by faith. He's still walking by sight, but he wanted to. I don't care how many times you fail in life as a child of God. I don't care how many struggles you have. As long as when you get up, the desire to do what right is there. In time, you will, as Peter did, overcome that, and you will learn how to keep your eyes on Christ and walk that way that God wants you to walk. It'll happen. It has to happen because when you have a man like Peter who wants to do right so desperately that he makes mistakes in doing it because his zeal is way ahead of his knowledge. I can fix that. I have a spiritual staple gun in my office. And when you feel like being froggy and want to leap before you're ready, I will nail your feet to the floor. I will hold you accountable and I will help you grow to that zeal. 
And that's what it takes. That's what it takes. I love this. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 14, the Lord's up there giving a great discourse on the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's giving it in mystery form. And right in the middle of the thing, Peter stands up and says, Hey, Lord, will you declare unto us this parable? He wants to know. He has no thought of the fact that Jesus is speaking to a group. All Peter can see is, I'm here, I'm listening, and I want to know, and if I don't know, I want to know what's going on. I love that. I love that. I may tell you to shut up and sit down, but I love that. I love it. It's, it's incredible. That's exactly what he does. And you see that all the way through the all the way through the New Testament. He wants to know. He wants to learn. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he does it again. In chapter 17 of Matthew, verses 1 through 5, at the Mount of Transfiguration, and let me explain to you, the Mount of Transfiguration is a place where for a moment of time, Christ goes beyond the cross, and he gets glorified on that mountain like he will with the second coming of Christ. And the Bible says that seeing this event are Peter, James, and John. And uh, it's an incredible, incredible story. And right in the middle of this, while all this is going on, Peter pipes up and says, Hey, 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 Lord, is it good for us to be here? Now, I can just, there's sometimes you can just put yourself in Jesus' place. I mean, the obvious answer is, was, well, Peter, I wouldn't have brought you up here if it was not good for you to be in this place. But no, 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 Jesus doesn't say that. But I'll tell you one thing. And you see, you've got to see these little things in the Bible. Peter is opening up his mouth and inserting his foot still. But he's figuring things out. You know how I know that? How did he know it was Moses and Elijah there? Because it is Moses and Elijah. Because in that chapter he says, Lord, stupid question. Is it not good for us to be here? Dumb question. Should we not build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah? Good answer. He's half and half now. Part of his life he's just doing dumb things. Now he's doing half dumb things and half good things. That's the way it works. My goal in life is to get you to more dumb thing, do more good things than you do dumb things. But it's okay to do dumb things. Everybody does them. I still do them. But you know what? As you grow spiritually, you learn. And here's a case where he's, he's speaking out of turn saying, should we be here? But he figured out that this is a picture of the Feast of Tabernacles and he knows who Moses and Elijah is. And the only way he could have known that is it's revealed in the Old Testament and he's learning his scriptures as he goes. I see some of you the same way. I see some of you the same way. I'm excited you're preaching tonight, Johnny. I'm excited when everybody preaches. I don't mean to single you out. Everybody preaches down there. You know why? Because I get to evaluate you that way. And I get to see the good things that you say. I'll listen to your sermon and I'll say, you know what? There's things that he didn't say that he should have said, but look at the things that he got. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm not concerned that you didn't say everything the way you should have said it. Nobody at your age spiritually can. What I'm interested in is the fact, look at the things that you did say because of what God's showing you. That's growth. When I leave my sermon, when I leave on Sunday morning and I drive home and I'm thinking about what I preach, I get about 9,000 things that I wished I would have said. But of course, we all know we'd still be here till 4 o'clock if I did that. But my point is this, you look at and you understand that as you grow, God gives you the things to say, and it's part of the process. And that's why I love young men and young ladies in my ministry, and my whole life, my whole adult life has been taking young men and young ladies and showing them how to learn the Bible, how to preach the Bible, and how to build their marriages, families around the Word of God to accomplish what God wants them to do. And I just think that it is the greatest calling in the world. And I'm telling you, you're going to find that all through. In Matthew chapter 26, right before the Lord is being crucified. And this goes to show you where Peter is at. In Matthew chapter 26, you got two events. The Lord says, I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be sold into the hands of sinners tonight. And one of you 12 is going to betray me. Peter says, and the only one that really speaks this way, he says, Lord, 
I'll never deny you. God says, Peter, I got some news for you. Before the cock crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. And he did. But you know what? It was that same Peter that said, I won't deny you. And then over here did deny him three times that when they come to take Jesus, he pulls out a sword and swings that thing around and cuts off some guy's ear with it. You see the difference between it going back and forth? Now, a lot of preachers make Peter out a coward. A lot of preachers preach on Peter as a disappointment to God. A lot of preachers want to take the character study of Peter and, and use it as a thing that you shouldn't be because Peter obviously denied the Lord. But let me tell you why when you study it out, why he denied the Lord. If you think Peter was a coward, you don't know your Bible very well. He wasn't a coward. Peter's problem is simply this. His problem is he loves God. He loves Him with all of his heart. He loves Him more than anything else in all this world. He wants to learn. He wants to do it. But he's frustrated. Things aren't going by Peter's timetable. And he wants things in an orderly fashion. And in the Christian world, it doesn't go that way in an orderly fashion. Here he is. He wants to die for the Lord, but the Lord won't let him. After he cut that guy's ear off, the Lord said, Put your sword away. Walked over, picked up the guy's ear, and healed it, and put it back on. He's frustrated. Then he's over there and he's following behind the Lord. They take the Lord inside there and he's, he hears them slapping him. He hears them whipping him. He hears them laughing and cursing and he's outside and he wants to go in there with an AK-47 and level the playing field. But he can't because God rebuked him and told him no. He's frustrated. He's frustrated. And when he's frustrated, he does the same thing that we do when we're frustrated. He hadn't learned yet to trust God. He still hadn't learned to walk by faith and not by sight. He's reacting to the circumstances that he sees by his own desire to make things happen. And he hasn't yet learned that, you know what, some things that are bad just have to happen because God is the ultimate one in charge. And when you can't fix it, you got to just give it to God sometimes. When you didn't screw it up and you didn't cause it to happen and it's out of your control, there are times that you and I as the child of God just simply has to say, God, I'm with you. I'm hanging in there. But you know what? I don't like this, but you're calling the shots. We're going to ride it out together. Peter hadn't learned to do that yet. And so he's out there and a little gal comes up and she says, excuse me, aren't you Peter? And he says, no, I'm not Peter. She goes over here and does something else, comes back to over. She says, Surely. She says, Surely, you must, aren't you, 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 I saw you, you're with him. He says, Lady, look, I am not with him. She goes back over here a little bit, does a few more things. She comes back over and she says, You know what? Here's the key. You don't want to miss this. She says, Here it comes. This, don't, don't miss this. Surely, you must be one of his because you talk like he talked. At that point, Peter, to convince her that he wasn't really one of his, cursed and talked like the world so she wouldn't mistake him for Christ's follower. It's what you say and how you say it that people associate. It's the way you talk at work. It's the way you say things, the way you do things that people around you associate you who you're with. And when he wanted to blow off following the Lord, he just let out a string of cuss words and she said, whoa, I guess I was wrong. No follower of Christ could talk that way. Great lessons. Great lessons. Yet at the same time, I understand. He didn't deny Christ because he was a coward. He didn't deny Christ because he lost his faith. He didn't deny Christ because he denied Christ because he's a young Christian and he's frustrated and he's not yet matured to the place and he wants to go in and save his Savior and his Savior said no and he is frustrated and when we get frustrated, we do stupid things. And before any of us cast a a stone at Peter for denying the Lord. We better look back in our own lives and see how many times we have denied him. And then in John chapter 21, you have the great story where Jesus and Peter meet for the first time after, uh, after his betrayal. 
And when they meet that first time, uh, make a long story short, finally the Lord gets him alone. And you know what he says? He gives him some great advice at the end of John chapter 21. And breaking it down, he simply says this. He says, Peter, you're a good man. And I really love you. But Peter, you know what your problem is? You need to grow up. You need to quit acting like a child. You need to quit looking at things like a child. Someday, Peter, you're going to be a man and you may die yourself. And tradition says that he was crucified. He says, someday you're going to have to stand on your own two feet, Peter. And you're a good man, Peter. And I love you. And I'm glad I picked you. But Peter, I don't know how else to tell you this. You just need to grow up spiritually. And I said all that about Peter to tell you this. If you want to study where you're at with Christ, I don't know any other man in the New Testament that you can follow his growth process better than Peter. He did something that most people today are not willing to do. He learned from his mistakes. I do not care what mistakes a man or a woman makes. I do not care what your past has been or what your present is. I don't care that you stumble and fall in the sense of caring that I look at you badly because we all stumble and fall. What you have to begin to do is learn from your mistakes. A man or a woman who does not learn from their mistakes will continually make the same mistakes. And Peter is a man, and I know of no other man in the Bible, that you can just look at his life and his character and study him. And with all the mistakes that he made, here is a man that learned by his mistakes and turns out being a leader of men. Now, i got to be honest with you, men and gals. i got to be honest with you. My goal for every one of you is to be a leader of men. That is my goal. I see it in some of you. Some of you, I can shake your hand for the first time and know by the grip you grip me that you can be a leader for God if you would just get it all put together. I don't know what else to tell you. That's my job. That's what I do. That's what God has called me to do. You need to be the leader, first of all, in your marriage. Then you need to be the leader in your family. And then you need to be a leader of men for the Lord that men look at you and people see you, and ladies, ladies look at you, and they see the stability that they want in their lives. And I know of no other man anywhere in the Bible that lays that out better than Peter. And if you want to follow his life and look at it, you're going to get a picture of most of young Christians' lives. And many young Christians, when they make the mistakes in life because the pastor doesn't understand the Bible himself, all they do is kick you. And I don't ever help you. And you never, you never keep somebody accountable without letting them know that you love them and trying to offer them a way out. But it's as simple as that. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Christianity is one of those basic things in life that is real simple to understand. You only get out of it what you're willing to put into it. Somebody will call me this week with a problem, and the first thing I'll say to them is, where were you Sunday? Well, you don't understand, I had to do this or I had to do that. And there it is, right there. You only get out of something what you put into it. And when other things in life are more important than God, then that's, I mean, it ain't like we meet here every day of the week, and it, you know, it, uh, I mean, you got two times a week where you get in organized fashion something from God. I don't know of anybody in the world without obviously extenuating circumstances at some point in your life because things do come up, but the bottom line is, hey, you get out of what you put into it. Now, the greatest example of what I just said about Peter is found in the book of 1 Peter and the book of 2 Peter. Now, I want you to get those first two chapters of 1 Peter and 2 Peter in your little midst. And I want to show you how Peter grew. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and then we're going to compare that with 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and then we're going to dive into the book of 2 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Oh, I love that. Peter, I can just see it now, trumpet in hand. Peter, 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Look at me. Here I am. I walked with him for three and a half years. And I am Peter. And I am upon me. I got the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And the Lord bestowed upon me that great blessing in Mark, Matthew chapter 16. And I'm going to do what I got to do. And my name is Peter. That's the old Peter. Look in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. You see that thing? He learned some things. He learned that, first of all, before I am a pastor, I am a servant. Before he was an apostle, he needed to be a servant. And before you who, are, who become whatever you think you are, you need to understand that, we saw it last week, the way up is down. You have to be a servant. No great leader in the Christian world that I've ever studied ever became the man that God was willing to use to the degree that God did if that man or that woman wasn't willing to be a servant of God, whatever God wanted them to do. It's as simple as that. So between these two books, we see that he has grown from a baby Christian, Peter an apostle, to a man who leads men who really is used of God, Paul a servant, or Peter a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And with that introduction, I want to look at this small book and go through some things. And the first thing we want to do and is we're going to lay some things out. Now, where's Steve at? Where's my buddy Steve? Got about? Steve, you asked one of the greatest questions last Thursday night that anybody's ever asked me on a Thursday night Bible, or really at any time of my life. And your question, if you don't mind me sharing it with everybody this morning, because I want everybody to learn from it, and you'll learn from it today too. His question last Thursday night was, you know what? He says, I just really getting beat up. And I, at work and all the things that, you know, going on and all the pressures, I'm trying to live my life right. I'm trying to do what God wants me to do. And he says, sometimes I just get discouraged. I'm, and, and, and I'm, you know, things at work, people at work, they make fun of you, they laugh at you. You have pressure. Sometimes it's your own family, whatever the case. And I took him through some verses and I laid some things out. I didn't give you this one because I didn't want to shoot my sermon in the foot this morning. But I knew you were going to be here. And... Um, if you wouldn't, we're going to call you on the phone, get you out of bed, and get you over here. But anyway, but, but here's another one that goes along with what you said. Now, let's look at this. Now, I'm going to read chapter 1, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 4. First, 2 Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1, pick it up in verse 4. Whereby are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by these, the promises, ye might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, and besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to uh, brotherly kindness charity. For if these things, verse 8, be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall be neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, verse 9, he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from our own sins. Now, your question, Steve, was how do I get over this? How do I, in that question, even though you ask it, I promise you right now, is in the minds of 75% of God's people here this morning. Because we all have to struggle with the same things. Now, there's two things in here I want you to see. And the first thing I want you to see is the key to your growth and your Christian life are the promises of God. Now, promises of God in the Bible come in two forms or fashion. And this is real easy again. Promises in the Bible come in two forms or fashion. The first form of promises are for your salvation. If you're here this morning and you don't know for sure if you died, and if you don't know 100% accurate for sure in your heart that if you keeled over in the middle of this service, that you was going to go to heaven as sure as anything in this world, then God has written some promises to you that tell you if you put your faith and trust in His work on the cross, God promises He will not only save you, but He'll give you that eternal life and know for sure through the assurance. He says in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, In hope of eternal life, 
which God, who cannot lie, promised before the foundation of the world. God gave you a promise before you and I were saved that if you would give your life to Him and apply His death on the cross to your sins, He promised you He would save you. That's the first kind of promise. The second kind of promise is after you're saved. And that promise is not one to save you, but that promise is one to help you overcome <coughs> the circumstances in life, just as Steve asked the other day, that try to sink you. And I told you this Thursday night. Here's how the devil looks at it. The devil knows, Pam, that he cannot get your soul in hell. Are you saved? Are you sure? You don't look very convinced of it. Are you sure? Amen. Amen. Hold the line. Fix the leak. You know you're saved. All right. The devil doesn't like that. The day you got saved, he was upset about it. But he knows now he can never get Pam Steinmetz's soul in hell. So here's how he operates. Okay. I can't get Pam in hell, but I'll get Pam so caught up in the things of this world. Has he? No, he hasn't. Good girl. He'll try to get you off track, off base, out of sync, that he'll never get your soul in hell, but all the other people out there that you have ministered to and been effective to and been a witness to will never see Christ because Pam was too busy doing her thing than God's thing. That's how he plays it. That's what he wants for every Christian in here. If you're lost, he wants your soul in hell. If you're saved, he want, he'll allow you to go to heaven, but he wants your Brother, your sister, your friend, your neighbor, maybe your mom or your dad or whatever, to die and go to hell so he'll try to keep you focused off the things of God. You know how you stay focused on the things of God after you're saved? He gives you a set of promises in the Bible that help you overcome the circumstances of life. And he says in verse 4, that by these, the promises, ye might be partakers of the divine nation. Then you become more like God after you're saved every day of your life by learning promises. That's what we do in discipleship. We'll take a young couple that just wants to learn God. I'll put another couple with them, and they'll basically walk them through and teach them the basic promises of the Bible to help you build a better marriage, better family. I already see it in your life, Josh. Last week after the thing, you came to me and you said, Preacher, will you help me tell my kids about God and how to be saved and be baptized? He's only been saved three weeks. That's what I'm talking about. It's already had an effect in his life. That's the way it's supposed to be. He is supposed to get concerned. Now, you still have problems? You betcha. I do too. We all do. But you see, in spite of the problem, when he got saved, they weren't problem-free. He just now has the ability to get promises that will help him live above those things. And besides that, you shoot good with a shotgun. That's what I'm talking about. That's where you're at. That's where you're at. That's what you're doing with your life. You've come to the place where you've seen that life on planet Earth is pretty empty without God. And you've made up your mind that you're putting it aside and you're going to do it. And the way you learn it is by the promises and by these, the promises, you become a partaker of God's divine nature. And then it says in verse 5, and besides this, you see we don't stop there. We don't stop there. We've got to add some things to your faith. We've got to add some things to what you already have. And this is where my job comes in. This is where on Sunday morning, Thursday night, and through your discipleship and the people that God has put in your life that support you, this is where as you grow, we add to your faith. We give you the promises that will save you, then we give the promises that will keep you, and then we build upon that. Seven things is listed here. First one is virtue. Virtue is moral strength. Virtue is moral strength. Simply put, it gives you the courage to say no when the world says, come on. 
It gives you the ability that when you look at your little kids that you're trying to grow up right, that when you see something that you used to do that you know is going to be a bad deterrent to them, you have the moral courage and the virtue to say, I'm not going to do that anymore. For God's sake, for their sake, I'm not going to give them a bad example. It's moral strength to do what's right. And then the next thing he adds to that is knowledge. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that knowledge, uh, when a young man gets knowledge, he gets discretion. Discretion is the ability to look at something and say, you know what, I can allow that in my life, or you know what, I can't allow that in my life. Because you begin to realize that your whole life now is between you and God. And all that you want is what God wants. Then the next thing you add to it is patience. Now this is what Peter needed. In fact, Peter needed all these things. This is what he didn't have in the early Gospels, but he did have by the time he wrote this book. Because you're not telling me that he isn't writing this based out of his own experience. Peter learned virtue. Peter learned knowledge. And then the next thing he learned was temperance. Temperance is balance. It's moderation. It's self-control. Temperance is a thing that you don't let anything in this world control you other than the Word of God and the Spirit of God. You don't allow your flesh to be connected to anything that overrides God. And when it has been, then you follow the process of the principles and you get it out of your life. Then the next one is godliness. That's loving God more, more and more every day. The more you add these things to your faith, the more you love Him. Then it's brotherly kindness. That's loving each other. You see, you can't learn how to love other Christians because sometimes they can be hard to love until you first understand how to love God. When you understand how to love God, then you understand how to love God's people. And then the last one is charity. Now that's a great word. Let me give you a Bible definition of charity. Charity is natural love for somebody based on God's love for you and your understanding of it. We use the term today, <clears throat> well, we got a bunch of charity cases out there that we got to take care of. Charity being in the sense that we have to give them something for nothing, and that is charity. Charity is more than giving somebody something. Charity, by the Bible's definition, is loving somebody without any conditions to it. Loving somebody that maybe isn't lovable. Loving somebody you don't even know. Loving somebody openly and honestly simply because that's the way God loved you. I never look at a man, I never look at a woman that I meet the first time and think anything other than the fact, boy, you know what, what a great guy or what a great gal that would be if they would just give their life to God. Or if they're already a Christian, man, they're a great guy. You know why I never look at anything or anybody and look at them in a negative sense? I'll tell you why. Because the first time God lays out on me, I didn't look too hot either. And the first time God looked at you, you didn't look too hot either. And God loved us the way that we are because of the charity. And if you want to look at a charity case, here's one right here. I needed that charity. I needed that unconditional love. I needed God to love me when I was unlovable because that is the only thing that brought me to Christ. And I'll tell you a lot, guys, when you learn that concept, it'll be the only thing that'll keep you when the whole world wants to go. I wouldn't go back to that world for anything in the world. You know why? Simply based by the way they treated me and the way he treats me. I'm a charity case. I am a charity case. I am. Proud of it. So you see that these things are things that you add to your faith. When I work with young couples with their kids, and I try to help them uh, with their kids or, or in their marriage, or whatever the case may be, I tell them. I, and I've said it before. You're never going to learn the Bible on your own. That's why God gave you a church. The church should be a Bible, New Testament teaching church. It should be one that simply follows the Scriptures. It ought to be one where the pastor is a servant's heart and you, you come to the place that you can get whatever you need for your family. That's what God intended it to be. This, a church, the mindset today, the church is a lockbox. And you've got to have the key to get in. You know what the key to get in is? Box. It never should be that way. There never should be a lockbox on a church. This church is for here for one reason, that is that every man and woman that wants to build a relationship with God should get whatever they want, whatever they need it, however they need it, as much as they need to get what God wants them to have. That's what the church is. And anything else is the wrong concept. 
and it's the way that it is. And I, I, I'm telling you, when you, when you, if you want to learn the Bible and you want to grow, then you have got to get that kind of mindset. All right, now that's chapter, that's chapter 1. Now we'll come over here, to, we come on down through chapter 1 again. Look down here in uh, uh, chapter verse 16 to 21. Now I'm going to give you another great passage. And this is one of the greatest passages in all the Bible, on the Bible that God gave you. Now, if you're keeping record here, so far in our study through the books of the Bible, we saw in James chapter 1, verse 22, how that the Word of God was a perfect looking glass, that you can look into it and you can see yourself as you really are. We talked about well, that's why men don't like the Bible. Then we saw in Hebrews chapter 4, when we came in through Hebrews in verse 12, that the Word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword, and I showed you seven things in there that the Word of God will do for you. So we looked at that. When we come through the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, I showed you how all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and I showed you how that the Word of God is profitable for a thing, doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Then when we came through 2 Timothy, chapter 2, I showed you how the Bible said that you and I are to study, to show ourselves approved, and the Bible says that we are to, as Christians, rightly divide the Word of truth. Now, I want to give you another great one. Now, you don't want to miss this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 21. It says this, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we make known unto you the power in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom am I well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also, here it comes, watch this very carefully, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. Now let me break that down for you. What Peter is saying here. He's saying basically this, and this is a great study on the Bible. There's a reason why God gave you the Bible. One of the reasons is, is the Bible has the promises in it that you need, not only to save you, but to keep you. But let's look at something else about the Bible in here. Now what Peter is saying here in verse 16 is simply this. He's saying, hey, we got the message from God directly. What I'm preaching to you, what I preached in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I got directly from the Lord. I didn't get it from any man. Nobody came and told me. He makes a reference here in verse 17 and 18 that when they were on the Holy Mount, and that's the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17 we already talked about earlier where Peter opened his mouth and talked about the tabernacles of Moses and Elijah. When he was up there, God gave those men some instructions. And what Peter is saying is this. We got our message straight from the mouth of God. We heard His voice, and the voice of God said to us, This is my beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Hear ye Him. And then He goes on and He says, But you, you have a more sure word of prophecy, the written word of God. And let me just pause here. More sure than what? More sure than the very voice that they heard on the mountain back there. Now that's an incredible concept. Because it's telling you, ladies and gentlemen, and what you've got to understand, that the book that God gave you, the Bible you have in your lap, that Bible was given to man by God to man, and it is exactly perfect, without error, and it's everything that God wants you to have, and it is, if, if you were reading your Bible, and the Lord appeared over here in the corner and said, hey, Bob, this is what I want you to do, you wouldn't listen to the voice, you'd listen to the book. God replaced himself on this planet when he went back to heaven with a book, the Bible, the Word of God. And it's absolutely trustworthy. It's got the promises that will save you. And it's got the promises that will keep you. And make your life, your marriage, your family exactly what God wants it to be. 
And that is one of the greatest passages in the Bible that tells us you need to understand that when God gave you that old King James 1611 authorized version, you got the absolute infallible Word of God. But oh, here comes chapter 2. Oh, I might expect. In chapter 2 now, we start to see in verses 1, 2 here, and then on down it says this. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their penentious ways. Penentious means penentious. It means evil. By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Ah, you know what he's saying there? He put chapter 2 after the last part we just looked at because you know what? I told you before. I told you when we started our study and about the Bible and about everything that God's doing. I told you that life on planet earth is nothing more than God with a plan moving in a direction to accomplish that plan and then the devil moving in opposition to stop that plan. That's what you got right here. No more do we see in 2 Peter 1, 16 and 21 that you got a more sure to word of prophecy and then Peter tells us in chapter 2 that there's men that's going to come and speak evil of that way. Because the devil hates that Bible and it's no accident that the Holy Spirit of God put chapter 2 about the false teachers and the men with pernicious ways and who hate the truth and speak evil of the truth. There's no, there's, there's no accident that he put it at the, at, the, in, at the end of the last chapter to show you that the devil wants to destroy your faith in that book. Look at verse 17. These, these people, are wells without water. Now, you know what water, John chapter 4, you got the story of the woman at the well and she's thirsty and she comes to the well and Jesus gives her to drink and she gets everlasting water and that whole story. Water in the Bible is a picture of salvation. You know what they're saying? They're saying there ain't any salvation with these guys. They are wells without water. Look at verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh. That's what they do. There's a hundred thousand people in Kansas City today that went to churches and when the guy got up and took 20 minutes, if he took that long, to lay out his sermon, everybody left and on the way home, the husband says, wasn't that great today? And she says, yes, it really was. What do you think he was trying to say? They were impressed with his vocabulary but they didn't get the message. I mean, I can impress you. I know I'm not much of an impressor. I mean, I wear a suit and tie, but you know what? That doesn't help me any. I mean, I don't have a degree. I'm not a doctor of theology. Giving me a degree in theology is like eating whipped cream on an onion. Not a good way to do it. But believe it or not, I can impress you. I can impress you. I could walk up to the pulpit after Danny. I could have Danny sing those great, you know, I, I wouldn't come up and make a fool out of myself and say, wave the answer back to, that's, that, that's, that's unprofessional. I'm supposed to stand over in the corner and look holy. <laughs> and then when my time comes up, I walk up to the pulpit with the holy, prowless look. With my messages typed out and spaced with a typewriter that would be impeccable? <laughs> Somebody asked me one time, why do you write your sermons with such big letters? And my answer was, because when I run by the pulpit, I can see what I want to say next. <laughs> I could stand up here and say now today, ladies and gentlemen, I want to teach you about the great truths of sodiontology. I want to talk to you today about how angiology, along with eschatology, will form into a homunical scission of the Greek participle of the aorist tense of the verb. So, 
with that in our hearts. We enter to worship and we leave to serve. So take the hermeneutical values of the great eschatology lesson on apologetics. Understand how the angiology of the eschatology fits into the empology. And then go your way to serve your master. Now, you walk out of here and you'd say, man, was that great today? Your wife would look over, oh, sure it was. What do you think he was trying to say? You can't learn that way. When Jesus fed them on the 5,000 in the hill, show me one place where Jesus said, okay, boys, today we're going to talk about eschatology. You know what he did? He took things like trees, things like fish, things like rocks, things like the natural things he created. And he says, you want to understand this? This is like this. This is like this. But we're in a modern time today. When I was growing up as a kid in grade school, we walked around a circle and we went like this. Three blind mice, three blind mice, see how they run, see how they run. They all go after the farmer's wife, she cuts up their tail with a carving knife. Have you ever seen such a sight in your life as three blind mice, three blind mice? That's what they did, that's what I did. Your kids go to school today, they walk around the thing, and it's all changed because we're society. It's not three blind mice, it's a trio of sightless rodents, a trio of sightless rodents who proceeded in the most unusual manner to scamper about, who proceeded in the most unusual manner to scamper about. They ensued a pursuit after the agricultural spouse. They ensued a pursuit after the agricultural spouse. She cut off their external extremities with a, with a carving utensil. Have you ever observed such an unnatural phenomenon all days of your life as a trio of sightless rodents, as a trio of sightless rodents? See how it works? Now you're impressed with that. Matter of fact, I'm impressed with that. I didn't even know I could get all that out. Maybe I am more qualified to be what I ought to be. No, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. All down through the head. I know you don't understand some of this. I look back in history and I see an old boy like William Tyndale. And I know you don't know probably who William Tyndale is yet. Some of you do. rest of you will in time. He's one of the men that made one of the first English translations of the Bible. In fact, 95% of your King James Bible was off of Wycliffe's and Tyndale's translation. He did it all the way back in 1495. And you know what? He was, super, super, he, was, he was severely persecuted. They wound up killing him, burning him at the stake. And one day when he was called on the carpet in England, because what he did was took the secret Bible that man was not allowed to read, who the Roman Catholic Church was saying that nobody can have the Bible, nobody can read the Bible, that all the Puritans and all the groups were keeping the Bible from the people. He took the Bible and put it in the English language of the common man. And when he was called on the carpet in Oxford uh, in Cambridge with the great scholars of the day and they were reading him over, he looked out the window and he saw a little plowboy out there plowing the field. And he said to those scholars, you see that plowboy out there? You give him my Bible and give him three years and he'll know more scriptures than all of you men put together. They burned him at the stake. Want to see how God worked down through history? Want to see how you got your Bible and the kind of men that brought it? They burned him at the stake for that sound piece of theology because they didn't want you and me as the common man to have a Bible where you could find a relationship with God. They didn't want it to be three blind mice. They wanted it to be a trio of sightless rodents. And they took old Tyndale and they put him at the stake and they burned him at the stake. And before he died and went home to be with God, the last prayer out of his mouth, he cried above the flames. It wasn't, oh, God, save me. It wasn't, oh, God, it hurts. It wasn't, oh, God, you know, no, he'd been down through that. The last thing out of his mouth in the prayer before God that he cried out as he was last breath of life was, God, open the king of England's eyes. God honored that prayer and 75 years later, James I of Scotland, the King of England, authorized for every man and woman on the face of this planet to have a Bible in their own language. You got it today. King James 1611, authorized version. That's how God works. That's how God works. Then we come to chapter 3. Got to move on here. Chapter 3, without a doubt, one of the greatest passages and keys to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here he talks about the fact that uh, he says in uh, 
coming down through this chapter, he says, uh, he says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure mind, by way of remembrance, that you be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us apostles of the Lord Jesus and Savior. Knowing this first, that it shall come in the last days, scoffers walking after their own lust, we're all around us today, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by the world, uh, whereby the world that was was overflowed with water perish, but the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, here it comes, verse 8, Be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, promise of His coming, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. I told you earlier, promises are two kinds in the Bible. I'm going to give you a third one. You've got promises in that Bible that God gives you that He promises He will save you. You've got promises in that Bible that God says He gave you that He'll keep you. And you've got promises in that Bible that God tells you He's coming back for you. He's coming back for you. You let them laugh at you, Steve. You let them make fun at you, buddy. And everybody out there that's trying to take a stand for God and do what's right, you let them laugh. You let them make fun of you. You let them go ahead and ridicule you. You take all the pressure you can. I got some news for you, brother. The Lord's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. I heard a story years ago of an old Philadelphian preacher. I heard this thing 35 years ago. I've never forgotten it. They could preach back then. And they didn't, they didn't use all the fancy, great, swelling words, brother. You're likely to get a cuss word slipping every once in a while with those old boys. And I'll tell you what, this old boy is up there preaching. He was preaching on the coming of the Lord and how everybody was making fun of everybody. He said, I want to tell you a story. And I want to tell you this story. It's a true story. He says, when I was a little boy, he said, I was a little runt. When I'd go to school, all the bullies would pick on me. And he said, there was one bully in particular that every day I'd have to give him my lunch money or he'd beat me up. Sometimes he beat me up even though I gave him my lunch money. And he said, I got so sick of getting beat up by bullies and pushed around by bullies. He said, I just, he said, one day I got out of school. And I got out of school a little early. And a, and a, and a, and a bully, I hadn't seen him all day. And he said, I got down there and I started to go home. And I got about a half a block and I looked back. And just as I looked back, that bully came around that corner and saw me. And he said, Hey! And I started to run. He said, that big bully started to run after me. He said, I live five blocks away from home. He said, I was trucking. And he said, I looked around and that bully was gaining on me. And he said, I'll tell you what, my little heart was coming out my mouth. And I was running. And I come to the corner and I saw my house. And I'm running for my house thinking when I get into my yard, that bully, I'll be home and I'll be safe. He says, you know what? I got to that thing and I couldn't get the gate open. And he's right behind me. And I got the gate open and locked the gate, went around the back of the house, and I looked around the corner. That big bully just cleared that gate. He's coming after me. He said, I got in the back there, boy, and that bully got me by the scruff of the neck. And about that time, the back door opened, and my 25-year-old brother, just home from the Marine Corps, stepped down the back steps. He says... I looked at that bully, I looked at my brother, and I said, Hey, you want to beat me up now? Hey, you want to laugh at me now? Hey, you want to make fun of me and take my lunch money now? My big brother's home. Let them laugh at you, Steve. Let them put it to you. Let them make fun of you. Let them ridicule you. There's coming a day, brother. I got a promise that he saved me. I got a promise that he keep me. My big brother is coming back. We'll see who's who then. Now take your best shot. You wait till my big brother gets here. We'll straighten it out. Now you'll be looking for your own lunch money. He promised that he's coming for me. He promised. 
that he would come for me. Just like he promised he would keep me every day that the world wouldn't swallow me up. Just like he promised that he'd save me. Oh, I'm telling you, the three greatest promise God ever gave man or women on this planet is that God promised that he would save you. You can know today beyond any doubt in your heart. If you died, you're going home to be with the Lord. And if you're saved, the promises of that book, if you just let us help you. And that's my, that's my struggle. That's my job, to get you to see that life on planet Earth as it really is, not as it has been prepared for you by the devil to appear. God saved you, folks, for a reason. God gave you the husband and the wife and the kids you got. The circumstances, they may not all be good, but they're there to help you grow. And God's got a plan for you. And you've got to see and understand that there is more to life than just what you think there is. And I know the suffering and the ridicule and all the things that go along with it and our own headaches and our own problems. It keeps our focus off. But I'm telling you, he promised that he would save you and you can take it to the bank. He promised that he would keep you. You can take it to the bank. And he promised that he would come back and deliver us from this mess. And I'm taking it to the bank. When I was a kid growing up, probably all your kids don't even know this. Some of you older guys and gals may remember this. We had a thing back when we grew up called alleys. Remember Allie's Pat? Yeah. But they called you Allie Pat, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> we had alleys. Alleys were a little cinder road behind your house. They weren't good for much. The trash trucks came down, and that's how they picked up the trash. Your garage at that time, you didn't enter from the front. You drove in the alley, went up the alley, the garage door there, you went into your garage from the alley. Steve, remember alleys? John, remember alleys? Betsy. I'm over here, Betsy. You're too young to remember alleys, aren't you? Yes, okay. We played a game. It was called hide-and-go-seek. Here's how it worked. All the kids in the neighborhood. See, we didn't have gangs back then. Well, we did, but not the gangs like today. Gangs back then were marble shooters. <laughs> today, they're SIG AK-47 and shotgun shooters. <laughs> but we all got together in the alley, and we said, okay, you're, you, you, you've got to hide your face, and you've got to count to 100. And while that person is counting to 100, everybody else scatters. Now, you've got rules. You can only be 50 feet, 100 feet off each, either side of the alley, but you can hide anywhere. And what you've got to do is there's a big spot where this guy's at, and if you get back to that spot before the guy sees you, then you've got to yell, Ollie, Ollie, in free. That means you're in. See? So the guy counts to 100 while he's looking. Everybody hides. And then he has to go find them. And you walk down the alley and you say, I got you. And you go back and you touch the thing. He's out. If while you're up here looking here, little guy comes down here and touches the thing, he's home. He says, Ollie, Ollie, in free. See? And then that's how the game went. I know it's stupid compared to Pac-Man and video and driving down the street with drive-by shootings, but back in the 50s, that's all we had. I, I can see on some of you young people's face, boy, that sounds really boring. I know. We didn't have laptops. We didn't have lap bottoms. We didn't have anything. We had ollie, ollie, in free, and you're it. And everybody was hid. Everybody was hiding. And it was the guy's job to come and find him. And so after I counted to 100 you turn around, and this is what you said. Ready or not, here I come. And then you went to find them. Years later, when I got saved and I got my life surrendered to the ministry, and I understood the great principles about the coming of the Lord. I read one time, you don't have to turn to it, just listen to it. I read one time a game the Lord played. And that game's called a game of life. In the game of life, it runs like this. 
The Bible says the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to this planet to seek and find you. And just like in the game, show me you get found and show me you keep on hiding. Show me you. You got to the thing where it's, Ollie, 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 in free. You got saved, you're in free. The Lord still to this day is playing this game in the game of life and he's walking up and down and he's trying to find you and some of you are so good at hiding from him. But Revelation chapter 22, verse 11 and 12 about the coming day of my Lord and the promise that comes along with it, he says this. He that is, in, he that is unjust, <coughs> let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly. Ready or not, ladies and gentlemen, shaved or lost, here he comes. He's coming. He's coming. Every head bowed and every eye closed.